Hi, I'm your host, Mo Litsky, and the CEO of Prime Quadrant. You're about to hear a conversation from our Lunches with Legends series, where we connect with some of the most illustrious business and investment leaders around the world. To learn more, check out our website, lunchswithlegends.com. Now, without any further ado, I'd like to introduce you to our very special guest today, the legendary David Rubenstein. Uh, David is the co-founder and co-chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms. Uh, he co-founded the firm in 1987, and today Carlyle manages $293 billion from 26 offices with over 1,800 employees around the world. And perhaps most impressively, uh, David has committed to giving away all of his uh, fortune during his lifetime, receiving countless awards for his philanthropy and sits on or chairs the boards of, of many distinguished institutions. David is also the host of the David Rubenstein show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations on Bloomberg TV and PBS, and the author of uh, The American Story, um, the Conversations uh, with Master Historians, How to Lead. Um, and uh, again, this is the wisdom from the world's greatest CEOs. And of course, uh, Game Changers, his most recent um, I'm sorry. And uh, of course, the most recent book, which is uh, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. So ladies and gentlemen, it gives me great pleasure to welcome the one and only Mr. David Rubenstein. David, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure to be here. So let's let's dive right in and, and, and let's maybe begin with your story. You know, you come from very humble beginnings and by all accounts, you've sort of uh, risen to um, uh, success, Forbes, 400, industry leader, thought leader, et cetera. When you look back, what do you consider some of the most formative events or the perhaps the greatest inspiration that helped shape who you've become? Well, I had a lot of luck. Um, and I guess most people are probably formed to some extent by their parents. I was an only child, grew up in very modest blue collar setting. So my parents obviously had some impact on me. They were not college or high school graduates, but they obviously put a lot of energy into their only child. I you know, had a lot of uh, friends when I was growing up, a nice, normal, I'd say, blue-collar kind of childhood. I uh, had some mentors over the years that helped a lot, but uh, luck was a major factor. I got lucky by getting a job in the White House. I got lucky by having Carlisle take off. I got lucky by um, having it succeed and getting involved in a lot of philanthropic things that are, are interesting to me. So luck has been a big factor in my life. And were there any any specific um, perhaps books or writers or thinkers that maybe had a per- deeply profound impact on your life? Well, as a young boy, I was uh, very interested in politics, and I was uh, impressed by John F. Kennedy, who became president of the United States in 1961. Uh, his inaugural address was quite inspirational. Probably his commitment to getting people to go into government and public service was something that inspired me to want to go into government service. So I subsequently worked for the man who wrote the inaugural address with President Kennedy, Ted Sorensen. I was in a law firm with him uh, as a young lawyer right out of law school, and um, he was an inspiration. And then I've had a number of people over the years at Carlisle who've been you know, inspirational. Jim Baker was a secretary of state. He was at Carlisle for a while, George Herbert Walker Bush, and so forth. And so was, I'm going to skip the point, you know, you, you spent time in the Carter administration, went back to law, decided it wasn't for you, started Carlisle, and, uh, and there's some great stories around that. But I guess if I could, um, uh, as you reflect, what were some of the biggest learnings and surprises that you had in building Carlisle? 
Well, how little I knew about the financial world was number one. I didn't really know much. I was a lawyer and I wanted to get into the financial service world. I didn't know anything about it. So I obviously had to get people to teach me and I brought in some people that knew a lot more. Um, I was you know, uh, surprised at how many people around the world knew a lot about investments compared to me. And I was surprised at how many people were willing to meet with me as I was trying to raise money going around the world, raising money. Um, I was uh, surprised that money and the investment world were kind of an international language and people around the world are all interested in making good investments. And we were fortunate to have a good track record. So it enabled me to get in to see a lot of people. So, um, and I wouldn't say it's a surprise, but it was, uh, it was interesting to, to see a different world. I had not been exposed to the business world or the financial world very much before I started Carlisle. And, and so I guess other than coming up the learning curve, if I could rephrase that question, when you think about the, the most profound challenges that you faced in, in, in either building or, or, or growing Carlisle, uh, what have those been and how have those shaped you? Well, we started in Washington, D.C. That's not a place that was known as a private equity powerhouse. So many people didn't take us seriously. Two, we didn't come out of investment banking background, so therefore we were seen as not being really qualified to be in the private equity world. The early founders of private equity had generally been in investment banking before. Three, we were trying to build a global brand, which hadn't been done before. Private equity tended to be relatively small firms that were focused only on their own country. And I was interested in building a global firm that was investing all over the world and was getting investments, investors from all over the world. So trying to tell people that you're going to build a global private equity firm based in Washington, D.C., uh, people were somewhat skeptical. Mm -hmm. And so when you, okay, so those are obviously, let's call them innovations um, in, in sort of building, the, it was uh, coming out of Washington, thinking globally from the get-go. Um, where do you see, and, and you were obviously unique in that, where do you see innovation in private equity today? Well, private equity is a different is a phrase that means different things to different people. In the United States, it tends to mean any investment in the private type of uh, area. So it could be buyouts, it could be venture capital, growth capital, distressed debt, infrastructure, and so forth. Outside the United States, the phrase private equity tends to mean buyouts. But the way mm -hmm. I use it is means all private investments. And mm -hmm. I'd say the, the private investment world has changed dramatically because more and more people are investing in it. It used to be that people might allocate 2 to 5% of their portfolio to private equity, um, the broader sense of private equity. Now people are probably devoting 25 to 30% into some of these so-called alternative investments. So it's much more acceptable than it used to be. Also, the returns have been much higher uh, in recent years than people ever thought they would be. I also think that there's a proliferation of firms. There's an enormous number of private equity firms around the world. And increasingly, more and more private equity deals are done outside of the area where they really were dominant for so long, the United States and Western Europe. The United States and Western Europe still dominate the private equity world. Most dollars get invested there. But increasingly, you're seeing more and more money being invested in Asia and other parts of the world. And so just to pick a pick up on where you left off. I mean, you mentioned, number one, there's more money coming in. Number two, there's more private equity firms. On top of that, we're also seeing more firms, institutions, family offices, even public companies sort of acting or behaving as, as sort of private equity firms. What impact do you see that having on the sector? Well, the private equity concept essentially from the beginning was align the people doing the work with the investors so that the People doing the work would be incented to do very well, work very hard, and to get a piece of the profits. That was a novel concept. 
and actively being involved in whatever the company was doing, not just passively sitting on the board, but actually adding value and doing the kind of things that can really make a difference. That's a concept that was relatively novel when it got started. But now people accept the idea that private equity people are going to be highly motivated economically to do well. They're going to spend real time managing the company and doing the kind of things that maybe large public companies didn't do before or still don't do. So the concept of, of private equity is one of, I think, value added, um, highly motivated people, highly incented people. And I think at this point in time, the animus towards private equity is probably receded a bit. For a long time, people thought that private equity was mostly just um, barbarians at the gate type of thing where you're going to uh, pillage companies. But now I think people recognize that private equity firms with an enormous number of roster of former CEOs that they have now associated with them, they're really going to add value and do something useful. Right. Yeah. And I think when you when you think about the olden days, which you referenced, you know, people, it had a bad rep because also you had these incredible deals that were being done with very limited equity and lots yes. and lots of debt. So today, like nobody's doing deals with 5% equity anymore. And the leverage ratios for these buyouts are more conservative, but the the system is much more indebted and the valuations are much higher. So how do you think about that? What impact will that have on private markets going forward, where you have much okay. more debt in the system and valuations are higher? Well, for those who are listening or watching, uh, basically when private equity first started, people put sometimes 1% equity in and 99% debt, or more typical was 5% equity. The famous RJR deal from 1989, uh, that one, uh, which KKR took uh, private, that was 5% equity, 95% debt, various tranches of debt. Today, the deals have 50% equity, maybe 60% in some cases, maybe 40%, but they're much better equitized. Secondly, it's much harder to default on the debt because the debt doesn't, don't, doesn't have specific covenants that say, if you don't do certain things, uh, we're going to call the debt in default. So these things are often called covenant light debts or covenant free debts. So it's harder to default. Also, um, the economy has been relatively good for the last X number of years for private investments. We haven't been through a recession since 2008, 2000, 2007, 2008 of any consequence. And as a result, everybody thinks that nothing can go down. So the returns have been good. People have been paying high prices because they're not afraid of thinking things going down. There will be some correction at some point. But what, what's happened in private equity and private investment world over the last 25 years is that more and more people are investing in it. More and more people expect to get better returns from it than anything else. And more and more people accept it as a relatively normal part of the investment world. And so I want to touch on something you said. So um, returns have been extraordinary. Um, and you've been in this business for a long time. And ever since you've been in this business, we witnessed like this gradual decline in interest rates from, you know, 8% all the way down to zero, basically. So what, what do you, and perhaps should other private equity investors expect in an environment where rates go the other way? Um, what are you expecting uh, from returns uh, as we look forward? Well, early on in private equity, because you're you're putting 5% equity in a 95% debt, if the deal worked out, you'd make very good rates of return because you're so much uh, debt and uh, not that much equity to, to, to uh, have to worry about. Now, when you have more equity in, the returns will inevitably come down. Um, and also because you're paying higher prices, it's probably likely returns will come down. Returns haven't really come down all that much, though, because the economy has been relatively strong and also interest rates. For, uh, are so low that when you borrow a fair amount of money, much 
uh, 40 or 50 or 60 percent of the capital structure, you're not paying all that much interest compared to what you were doing 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, investors have gotten used to high rates of return. You know, I'd say in private equity, people generally think that you should get a 20% net internal rate of return. Historically, today, people are probably expecting 15% net internal rates of return. Uh, you're really, really good in the venture world. The top venture firms are actually doing obviously much better than that. But on, on the overall in private equity spectrum, I would say returns of maybe doubling your money and getting a 15 to 20% rate of return is probably considered more normal. Hmm. Interesting. So we're going to, we'll dive into the economy and actually tackle some of these topics a little bit more um, fulsomely. But before we, just before we go there, I, I actually, I want to make sure we, we get to the most recent book, which is this, uh, the American experiment. So maybe if you could start off just by sharing with us what prompted you to write the book and what is the most important thing that you hope people will take out from your most recent book? Well, I've been spending a lot of time in American history lately. I do a lot of interviews in that area, and I'm quite interested in the, in, in the subject. And I worked in the White House, and you get a sense of history. And if you live in Washington, you get a sense of history as well. What I wanted to do was to convey that the United States was an experiment, a very rare experiment in uh, creating a government out of whole cloth. And the government wasn't a government run by a king or a despot, but was really run by a democracy or a representative democracy, though there was a president, but he wasn't given the kind of authority that a king would have. And the idea was to create a better way for people to be governed than people had been governed in Europe. Um, it's an experiment in, in trying to see whether self-government can work, experiment in democracy and representative democracy. But it's an experiment where the rhetoric was much better than the reality. When Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, we want all men to be created equal or all men are created equal. The truth is he was really talking about all white property Christian men. Women weren't given the right to vote. Obviously, we had slaves at that time. So it was it was a concept of for people who have money, who are Christian, um, they can have they should be treated equal. Now we're trying to expand that so that everybody in society is treated equally and everybody has an equal opportunity to move forward. And so that's uh, what's happened over the 250 years of our country's history. And this book takes you through that and shows that the, the various fights and struggles to get better rights and to live up to the founding fathers' ideals. It also describes what I call 13 genes that are part of the DNA of America, which is to say the belief in the right to, to the rule of law, the belief in the, in the value of democracy, the belief in the importance of voting, and so forth. These are genes that we have. In Canada, you have different genes. Uh, France, they have different genes. Every country has its own genes. Just like you have genes in your own body, every country, in my metaphor, has genes as well. And I pointed out 13 of these genes that were very endemic to America. But if I were to do a book about Canada, for example, I would probably have different genes that are endemic to the Canadian personality, Canadian country. So, so having gone through the, the, the genes that are sort of in the DNA of America, and you talk about, you know, again, there are those that... that uh, uh, the founding fathers established freedom of speech, freedom of religion, balance of powers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which are, in your opinion, are we not living up to, or, or are, is America not living up to today? Well, clearly, um, uh, let's take voting rights, for example. We believe that uh, in the one of the genes is the importance of the right to vote. Well, two aspects. One, a lot of people don't actually exercise their right to vote as much as they should. In the last presidential election, we had about 62% of eligible voters voting. That means that you know, 38% were not voting. Secondly, we now have uh, laws in 19 states that are prescribing or making it much more difficult 
for certain people to vote, particularly minorities. And so we are trying to do things that really take away the right to vote or make it easier to, to or make, make it more difficult to, to vote uh, than, than I think what it, what it should be. And that's just something that President Biden is now working on, trying to overturn, in effect, these 19 states' laws by having legislation coming out of the federal government that would supersede what the state governments are doing. But the right to vote is, uh, is something that I think is under challenge right now. And so, I mean, as I was reading through your book, I mean, the, the tone of the book is um, cautiously optimistic. I think, is, is that a fair way of, of categorizing? Yes. Um, look, any entrepreneur that you interview or anybody that's built a business or something like that, by definition, is probably going to be an optimistic person because you, if you were pessimistic completely, you probably wouldn't think you could build a business. So people <laughs> like me are probably have an optimism of the future and think that things will be better than, than, than in the future than than we might uh, think today, because there's always going to be challenges. So I am reasonably optimistic, but I'm cautious because I recognize that the country is divided down the middle right now. Uh, we were divided down the middle during the Civil War, and we came to, to you know blows over it. We're not quite doing that yet, though we did have the January 6th event. But we are really bitterly divided, and the Democrats and Republicans can't seem to find a way to get together and come up with bipartisan legislation, except in rare instances. So I, I'd say that the, the concept of a democracy working well is a bit of a challenge right now for the, our country because our democracy isn't working as well as I would like. Everybody's not getting a chance to vote. Not mm -hmm. a lot of people who have the right to vote are exercising it or not as much as I would like. And the government of the United States, as reflected in the Congress, is bitterly divided. And, and, and right now, the, um, bipartisan legislation is not something that's considered really a good thing by either party. Right. Yeah, and I mean, I, thought, I actually found it interesting, and given that cautiously optimistic tone, your book actually came out right around the same time as one of your friends, Ray Dalio, came out with his book, which was uh, The Challenging World Order and Why Nations Succeed and Fail. And, and he takes a much more pessimistic tone about, you know, America's prospects. And I know you were actually interviewing Ray in the next week or so. You know, where do you and Ray agree or differ about the, the future of America? Well, Ray was pointing out that there are trends and cycles in history. And what he was pointing out is that America has been a, a dominant part of the cycle for many, many years, maybe more than 100 years, but that China is now coming up and will dominate the global economy uh, in you know, the next you know, 100 years or so. And that China has many of the virtues that the United States once had. People are hardworking. People are, are focused on making the country better. Uh, people aren't fat and happy, which is, you know, a way he would might describe it. Um, so I, I think he just thinks it's part of the normal cycle of history. The uh, United States replaced Britain as the most important country in the world. And, and now China, he would argue, is replacing us. Now, it's going to take a period of time. It's going to be over many, many years. So I, I can't say that he's wrong, but I, I don't think that 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 I would uh, think that we should just put our head in the sand and say what's well, inevitable that China will do certain things and we can't compete. We can compete. We can do a better job in the United States. But I think we have to recognize that Ray is right. There are certain trends that do seem to be inevitable. And so uh, how exactly, how, like, can the chaos that's caused by a divided democracy that we're seeing in Washington today overcome the risk of an organized, even somewhat capitalistic, yet autocratic China? Well, you never know what's going to happen in the future, of course. And so it may be that there's a cataclysmic event in the United States, a 9-11 type of thing, a Pearl Harbor type of thing that really 
finally brings people together. I'm not asking for such a cataclysmic event, and I right. hope it doesn't happen. But sometimes things can happen that might change the way people look at things. There might be a charismatic uh, political leader that comes along who can really unite Democrats and Republicans uh, in ways that maybe the current people cannot do. So I can't say it's inevitable that the normal cycle will occur just as it has in the past. But Ray was really doing a pretty good job of pointing out what's happened in the past. And if the past is any indicator of the future, it's likely he would point out that China is probably going to be a stronger economic, geopolitical technology center than, than it has been and maybe than we are. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, you mentioned the, the prospect of potential of uh, this charismatic, dynamic leader coming along. I mean, a, a lot of people are saying, and rightly, wrongly, but just hearing that there's a sort of a dearth of, of uh, leaders and there's the leadership today. Do you feel that's true? And, and particularly from your close perch uh, to the yeah. Biden administration, um, uh, do we have more capable, less capable, equally capable leaders today than we've had in the past? How, how do you view that? Well, when we had our revolution in 1776, uh, we only had 3 million Americans and half of them weren't allowed to participate in government. Out of the half that were allowed, we got George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Jay, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and so forth. Now we have 330 million Americans and where are the Wa George Washingtons and Thomas Jeffersons? Well, they're around, they're just probably not in government in quite the way that uh, leaders were in 1776. I, I do think we have a lot of talented people in the United States but many of them just decided that politics is too difficult and it's just not as worth uh, pursuing as maybe um, it once was. So I think what we have to do is get more and more talented people to go into government and even if for a temporary period of time. I mean, you and you, how, how would that happen? I mean, a lot of uh, when you and I spoke last mentioned a lot of the people that come into government are those that worked on campaigns as opposed to, you know, a pure meritocracy, which you might see in the corporate world. How, how do you actually get more qualified, good people into government, especially in a government that's as divided and toxic as, as we're seeing today? Well, uh, there was somebody in my firm who was the co-CEO of Carlisle for a while, and uh, he ran for governor of uh, Virginia and got elected, Glenn Youngkin. And he mm -hmm. was basically an example of a business person who said, all right, I've made a fair amount of money by normal human standards, and I now want to go focus on giving back to my state and ultimately my country by getting involved in in, in electoral politics. So I think to the extent we get more business people to run for office, that might be helpful. Or people that have different backgrounds, foundation executives, university presidents, people that have all kinds of skills. If we can get them into government and, and get them into policymaking, it might be helpful. But there's no one answer. If I had the answer to how to solve all these problems, I would have gone to Iowa, New Hampshire a long time ago, but it's not easy to do. Yeah. Um, and and so I imagine politics is not in the cards. I worked in government and uh, we managed to get inflation to 15% when I was working <laughs> in the White House. So there hasn't been any demand for me to come back. Uh, if you pick up any demand, let me know. But there's nobody <laughs> knocking on my door. Um, also, in the way our country works, and it's maybe true in Canada as well, to go into government today, you have to be, be prepared to be completely vilified. To get through our nominating process in the Senate, you know, everything you've ever done from grade school on will be examined. And any one person can put a hold on you and block you. And the result is you might not get confirmed that people think you did something wrong. It's a system that's really designed to, um, I'd say, hurt people's reputations more than help people's reputations. And so a lot of good people don't want to be through that, go through that. And that's unfortunate. Hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. So let's come back to this time. Well, actually, let's come back to the current uh, day. But uh, thinking about that the last time you were in the White House, rates were 15%. Today, we're sort of at the uh, polar opposite of that. 
What's going on in the economy? How do you see the increasing role of central banks, rising rates, inflation, macroeconomic conditions, the state of the economy? How do you see it? Well, I think the central banks are much more sophisticated than they were during the time of the Great Depression. So when the Great Recession came along, the Federal Reserve and with other central banks moved quickly to kind of make certain that the Great Recession didn't completely end the, the Western economies as we know it. I think uh, in more recent times, the Federal Reserve has recognized that the pandemic really slowed the economy down and Congress provided more financial support, but the Fed provided lots of other support as well. So I think the Fed has done a reasonably good job. I think now it probably feels it's a little bit behind the curve, or at least some people would say it's behind the curve and, and spotlighting how inflation is a little bit bigger than the Fed once thought. So I think the Fed is likely to increase interest rates at least two times, probably three times this year. And that will probably reduce inflation a little bit. It may also slow down the economy a little bit as well. But overall, I think as we get through the, the COVID experience, the economy is going to change a bit. More and more people are going to work at home. More and more people are going to work remotely and do those other kinds of things they've been doing during this COVID period of time. And you'll see you know, a focus on more technology and, 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 and uh, supply chains being much more predictable than they are today. And so how does that affect your medium-term outlook in the market? Like, how does it inform some of your positions today? Well, I, I think that the market is going to do reasonably well this year, and the economy will do reasonably well this year, even if Congress doesn't pass any more uh, spending bills like Build Back Better. On the other hand, you tend to have recessions or so every 10 years or so. We haven't had one for probably our serious one since 2007, 2008. So it's, it's quite possible the economy could slow down and correct, if not go into a recession. I'm not predicting that, but it wouldn't be impossible for a slowdown to occur over the next year or two, given uh, past cycles. Well, I mean, some people are actually saying that given the amount of quantitative easing, that's sort of we're seeing the, the, the Fed is sort of pulling back um, on how, how much uh, treasuries they're buying. Uh, you're seeing IPO prices, most of which in 2021 are trading below uh, their IPO um, uh, issuance. And uh you're seeing concentration in the market. Some people are saying that we are already in early stage, uh, early stages of a correction. H how do you think about that? Is uh, or, well, or certain you... sectors are probably correcting. I think the technology sector is probably correcting a fair bit. Uh, real estate in some areas is probably correcting a fair bit. But until we see exactly the level of, that interest rates are going to go up um, and and how long they're going to be held up to this level, uh, we really won't know what the impact is going to be on the economy. But I think overall, I don't know of many economists that are predicting a recession this year in the United States or in Western Europe. I think uh, the Fed has played and, this, and European Central Bank has played a very key role in keeping the economy going. And I don't think they want to um, prematurely raise interest rates too soon, though they are worried about inflation. So we'll see. Uh, I, I'm not that worried about the global economy or the U.S. economy at the moment. I think there are bigger issues to worry about. So, so let's talk about this. Like, what are the things that are actually keeping you up at night? It's not, uh, what are you concerned well, in, about? In, in, in the United States, the most serious issue is, of course, solving the healthcare problem we have with Omicron and, and related uh, viruses. Uh, once that's behind us, I think we've got to deal with the division uh, in the country that's really very stark, see how we can bridge the gaps, and then, and then deal with income inequality. COVID has made it more likely that you're going to fall behind if you're not wealthy, you work with your hands, you're not educated, you don't have broadband access and so forth. So I think we've got to deal with the fact that we are in this capitalist system we have, while it has lots of virtues, it has one vice, which is that people can tend to fall behind and fall further and further behind. That's a major issue that I think we have to address in the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's two two pieces that you mentioned. I mean, the inequality, you know, um, and I'm I'm curious to hear how, how you think that's actually remedied. And that, by the way, that's not just an American phenomenon; that's a global phenomenon, right? We're seeing that everywhere. So how, how do you deal with that? And then the fact that you know, again, um, some of the polarity that you're seeing, not just financially but also politically, really a function of media that people consume and people are getting deeper and deeper into their echo chambers, hollowing out that balanced middle. How does that, like, how, how do you see a resolution towards that? Well, I, don't really, inequality. Well, I don't see an right. e easy resolution. Um, again, if a charismatic leader came along, maybe he or she could really unite the country in some way. I don't see that happening anytime soon. I, I think a, a cataclysmic event, which I don't want to have happen, that could unite people. But Again, it has the downside of being a cataclysmic event. Um, I think in the end, um, you know, we're just going to have to work our way through these problems relatively slowly. I don't think there's going to be any stark change um, dramatically uh, in, in the way the U.S. economy operates or, or, or income inequality is going to all of a sudden go away. I don't think so. And so, so how do you uh, that, that the, the role of in income inequality, how does that impact your decision making? How does that impact uh, the opportunity set that you're exploring? What theme segments of the market are you most excited about as a result? You know, maybe. Well, um, you know, as an investor, we're obviously interested in investing in products that are going to sell or services that are going to be bought. Um, you know, you don't tend to spend a lot of time worrying about income inequality when you're at investment committee meetings. Uh, you know, you recognize that that part of society is probably not going to be a big purchaser of your products and services. Uh, but, you know, nothing we can do about it. In the investment world, you tend to worry about, you know, different things than worrying about solving the problems of society. Uh, politicians and government officials are supposed to worry about the problems of society and so forth. And I would say they struggle to do so right now because a lot isn't getting done in our Congress. Um, president's major legislation to deal with some of these issues is bottled up in Congress and may not pass. Hmm. And so, so let's let's come back to that investment committee. You're sitting around the table. Where are you seeing the highest conviction opportunities today? Well, in the last couple of years, uh, growth capital and venture capital have been very, very hot. They've been quite attractive, uh, and people have made staggering amounts of uh, money in, investing in them. I think today, I would say buyouts of, at reasonable price are still pretty attractive because of the value-added services the buyout firms have. I think venture capital is very much a uh, a, a crapshoot. You really have to know what you're doing. It's it's a matter of luck to some extent. Even the greatest, greatest venture capitalists don't really know whether a deal is going to work or not when they put the money in. It's just different than the private equity or buyout world, uh, in, in my view. But I think technology will clearly be important going forward. And in fact, every, almost every deal has some technology elements to it. Things that deal with other uh, problems like climate change, those kind of um, companies will probably do well. And companies that are sensitive to ESG and have very good ESG metrics will probably do very well also. And so, you know, and, and I know you're sort of speaking in two hats because you have uh, the Carlo hat and, of course, your own family office. Um, so let, maybe if I could rephrase that, and and obviously it's a little less practical for Carlo, but for, for your own family office, let's say uh, you wake up tomorrow morning and somehow all of the assets in your portfolio have been liquidated. And um, you're starting fresh, uh, all cash portfolio. Where would you be looking for assets? Well, you always uh, make the most amount of money when you go where people don't want to go and basically, you know, take some counterintuitive risks. Today, a lot of people are nervous about China because of regulatory and other constraints. But I still, still think the Chinese economy is so big that investing there is good. I also think India 
is becoming an economic powerhouse and it's a good place to invest. Brazil has had its challenges for years, but I and, and the real has been a real problem as well against the dollar. But I think that Brazil will bounce back and, and be a good economy going forward. I think uh, areas of new interest are things that are, are the new wave of, of kinds of uh, areas. Cryptocurrency and related things to blockchain is going to be very attractive for a lot of people, certainly in the blockchain area. I think quantum computing will be a, a gigantic area in the not too distant future. Things related to life sciences uh, are also going to be quite, quite uh, I think, uh, attractive in the future. Um, I think things relating to CRISPR, that part of life sciences that uh, for which a Nobel Prize was awarded last year. I think that's uh, those are going to be very attractive areas. So I, I, I think there's a law somewhere that you're not allowed to interview someone in finance today without asking them about crypto. So uh, right. any unique views uh, on, on crypto and, and blockchain, digital assets generally? Yes, let's start with crypto first. We've had crypto for long periods of time throughout civilization. It's been called gold. Um, in other words, when governments came up with currency, paper currency, which is relatively modern, um, they, there were people, some people still wanted to have something hard that they could know that the, the value was there and they, they still bought gold. And even recently, people who are not worried, who are worried about inflation or worry about the, the value of the currency, they tend to buy hard assets, gold, things like that. Um, I would say crypto arose because there is a desire by some people to own assets that are not controlled by the federal government in any country, assets that can be moved around quite quickly without government knowing exactly what you're doing. Uh, there's a certain anonymity feature that many people find attractive about crypto. And I think it's therefore a mistake to think that the government is, can, again, can eliminate crypto. The United States government hasn't really imposed any regulations of any consequence yet. They may at some point, but probably it's the genie's out of the, out of the bottle. I think that crypto is going to be here for a while. And, and just as um, people uh, 25, 30 years ago began to say, well, I should have some alternatives investments in my portfolio, private equity, venture capital, and so forth. I think now people are increasingly saying, well, I should put one or two or 3% in the crypto, and then gradually they might increase it to a, to a larger amount. And the same is true of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. That's going to be a gigantic growth area. It's already growing. And I, I think things like that are, are probably going to be quite, quite attractive. Uh, crypto has the advantage for many people that the government doesn't know what you're doing, and you can move assets around quite quickly. And that has a downside as well because it helps criminal elements. But I, I find a correlation between many people that are against what the federal government's doing, people that don't like vaccinations and the vaccines and so forth. They feel that they should be free to do what they want and the government shouldn't tell you what to do. Many of those same people are the people that don't want the government to tell them the only value is in dollars. People would say, well, I want to create my own value. I'm going to put money into or assets into or into cryptocurrencies, and you're going to see a great make a lot more growth in crypto, in my view. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, just before we uh, jump off of the topic of, of uh, your family office, um, you've obviously given a lot of thought to it over the years. Um, what advice would you have for other family offices or common mistakes that you see other family offices you interact with making? Well, first, the, the word, the phrase family office means many different things. Some people tell me they have a family office. And what does it do? It just pays the bills. And that's okay. Some people say they have a family office that does philanthropy. That's okay. Um, some people have a family office that does all things, investing, philanthropy, pays the bills. And that's fine too. It depends on what you want from a family office. In my own case, I just have my family office doing investing. And it tends to invest 
principally in private equity or alternative investments, because that's the area that I really know. Uh, and so I find uh, areas that Carlisle isn't in, and I will then invest in some of those private equity areas with a team of people that, that I've helped recruit. Um, I think family offices are going to be a power in the future. Increasingly, you're seeing private family offices doing major acquisitions with each other. Uh, family offices are quite wealthy. There are some staggeringly large family offices have enormous amounts of money, and they can compete with, with private equity. So in the future, you're going to have not only private equity firms trying to buy major assets, not only sovereign wealth funds, but you'll have a series of private family offices probably trying to buy them as well. Right. Yeah, no, and I think that one of the things that we've seen in private equity, and you, you sort of touched on it, is um, you know, they're at the forefront of impact in ESG along with institutions for sure. And your daughter, Ellie, she launched an impact investment fund, at least called Monetary Partners. Yeah, uh, what role does impact uh have in your own portfolio? And how do you think about impact investing? Um, either like the interplay okay. or the interplay between impact and your philanthropy, um, et cetera. Okay. So the phrase impact investing was initially conceived of as investing in the private equity area, let's say, where you were going to invest in something that was, let's say, to make it a simple example, simple, something that was going to reduce climate change. So the company itself, its main purpose is to, um, to have some good social impact, hopefully getting a good rate of return. And it used to be thought that impact investing meant that you were probably going to get a lower rate of return because you were basically going to do certain things that were not just profit oriented. Today, impact investing is has kind of merged into all investing and everybody that is in the private equity world is sensitive to the impact of what they do with their dollars. And therefore, everybody has some kind of ESG metrics that will measure your, uh, your environmental, your social, your governance um, uh, quotient against uh, what should be a, a gold standard. And many people are trying to improve their ESG. And so many people would say all investing today should be impact investing. Maybe it's not solely designed to solve a social problem, but it's not going to harm a social problem or create a social problem. So mm -hmm. I think that's an important thing for all pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, and family offices. They are very sensitive to, for example, not investing anymore in oil and gas. Whether you think that's a good idea or not, many pension funds no longer want to invest in oil and gas assets. Mm -hmm. Presumably that creates opportunities in oil and gas, no? It does for people that um, can buy these oil and gas assets more cheaply. So mm -hmm. if fewer and fewer pension funds are going to invest in this area and fewer and fewer endowments are going to invest in this area, the assets value will probably go down, making them cheaper. Now, whether it's still uh, a good thing to make an investment in is another subject, but I do think you're going to see more and more people who care about ESG having an impact on the markets. Yeah, okay, sounds great. By the way, Dave, I'll continue because I keep hearing you, but uh, I think your camera went... Uh... Um, uh, all right. So let, let me just uh, uh, piggyback on that. I think you've, you're back. Um, you know, you, you, you were, I was actually interested in, in how you think about impact and philanthropy and whether or not there's an intersection there or what the continuum is. But I, I think maybe you could answer it in concert with uh, the fact that you, you've given your money uh, or you've actually were one of the original signers of the giving pledge, promising to give away your wealth. Um, how did you come to that? And I guess the uh, the other question is, did you have that conversation with your kids or just went ahead and do that? <laughs> how did that, uh, um, how was that uh, in the context of the family? Well, um, I came from very modest circumstances and I made a lot more money than I ever thought I would make. And 
you know, it's not clear that having billions of dollars makes you happier. Some of the most tortured souls I know are very well wealthy. So I didn't actually think by having a lot of money, I would make myself happier or that I'd be a better citizen because I had a lot of money. I also felt that I got lucky in my life and I owed a lot to the country where this happened. And so I wanted to give back to the country through philanthropy. And, and one subset of that I called patriotic philanthropy. Um, in terms of getting the Bill Gates came to see me in my office one day and he told me about the giving pledge. He later called me about it. And I said, OK, I would sign it. It says you're going to give away half your net worth upon your death or during your lifetime. You can actually give away all. And I've said I'm in the process of trying to give it away all, give all of it away. Um, I just feel that and you should do the best job you can to have your children uh, be good citizens, have happy and healthy lives. But it's not clear to me that giving each of your children a billion dollars makes them happier or healthier. And I think it'd be better to kind of do things on their own. So my children are all in private equity. They all go into business school. They all have MBAs, well-educated, and they're probably benefited a bit from my name. But, um, you know, but they're trying to build something a bit on their own. And I think they'll be better off for it. I didn't consult with them about the giving pledge because they were relatively young at the time. And I didn't think they would fully absorb everything I was talking about if I went to them for permission. And so, listen, your kids are all um, success stories in their own right, um, in, in their own careers and career trajectories. Uh, is there anything specific you did with your kids proactively growing up to impart those values on them? Well, uh, the good and bad is I was a hard worker when they were growing up. So they saw the, the, the virtues of hard work, perhaps, but also the vices of hard work. So, but I think my children, children have pretty good work ethics. And I think they all recognize that I regard philanthropy as an important part of their lives. And they are involved, all of them in one form or another, in various types of philanthropies that are different than mine. Um, yeah, so, and I, I think one of the questions that has come in is um, um, what advice you might give to young entrepreneurs that are just starting out. Um, is uh, when you when you were when your kids came to you, or I presume they did. What advice have you uh, repeatedly given uh, your kids on, on their careers? Well, I can't say a lot of people gave me advice other than, "Are you crazy? What are you doing? You don't know anything about the investment world, and you ought to stick to practicing law." In fact, my mother said, "David, you know, you could go bankrupt doing this. Keep your law license so you have something to fall back on." So I'm still a member of the DC bar in case I need <laughs> to fall back on it. But my advice I would give to entrepreneurs is. People are going to tell you what you're doing is crazy. Nobody told Steve Jobs what he was doing was smart. Nobody told Bill Gates that was a good idea to drop out of Harvard. Nobody told Jeff Bezos that was a good idea to, to drop out of the hedge fund and, and go across country to sell books over the internet. So entrepreneurs are by definition doing something that's novel and new, and people will say it's not a good idea. So you've got to be willing to put up with that kind of criticism. You also have to worry about um, you know, the the, the the failings of the business and, and all the trials and tribulations, and that don't let them get you down. But you can't make too many contacts when you're building a business. You make, make as many contacts as you can. You never know who might help you. You never know who might invest with you, who might have an idea, a customer, a relationship. Also, try to be as responsive as you can to your customers, as, as good entrepreneurs are. Listen to what your customers are saying. Try to respond to them. Make it a very customer-friendly type of business, but also recognize that the most important thing you can do is motivate the employees you have with you who are going to look at you and say, what are you doing? Are you working hard? Are you focused? And those are the kind of people you want to have working for you because you can't do it by yourself. No matter who you are, how smart you are, it really depends on a team of people to make a company work, not just one person.
Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So let me come back to the philanthropy and actually um, uh, making idiosyncratic decisions, as you just said, um, and um, un unpopular or unusual decisions. So you're an astute allocator of capital and you've chosen a myriad of options to make multi-million dollar gifts to, one of which was the National Zoo and specifically their uh, panda breeding program. Can you can you t share with us how you, how that rose to the top of the list and and what's that that's all about? Sure. Um, uh, the National Zoo in the United States, based in Washington D.C., is owned by the Smithsonian. And at the time, I was a region of the Smithsonian. I later became the chairman of the Smithsonian. And uh, it turns out that the Chinese government has lent pandas to about twenty-seven zoos around the world. They rent them out, and they rent them out because they need the money to help work on Chinese panda. Um, let's say preservation. Uh, the pandas have a difficult time mating and reproducing. They have a very complicated mating process and reproduction process. And the result is there are only about maybe 2,000 pandas in the entire world. And so uh, the, the effort that I made was to kind of give money to the Smithsonian so they could keep the, the pandas in the in United States or in Washington, and then ultimately do some research on how to help pandas uh, you know, procreate because it's not easy for them to do so. And so I've been doing it now for geez, maybe 10 years or so. And I think the, not because of me, but there's some progress in being made in, in enabling pandas to reproduce better, but it's a complicated process. And, you know, it's, it's one of the hardest reproduction processes, if not the hardest of any male, of uh, any mammal species. Hmm. Given the demographics changes that we're seeing in the Western world, any lessons learned for humans? Well, the lessons learned uh, generally is find something that you're interested in. I was interested in helping the Smithsonian, the National Zoo, and, and preserving pandas. So, But find whatever it is that you're interested in and figure out how you can help with your time, your energy, your ideas. I like to remind people that philanthropy is a, a word that's derived from an ancient Greek uh, equivalent that basically means uh, helping humanity or loving humanity. It doesn't mean just writing checks. So for young people, you can help with your time, your energy, your ideas. Volunteering time is a really good philanthropic thing to do. If you have money at some point, you can contribute it, but you shouldn't feel that you can't help other people unless you give them money. Right. And, and, and uh, clearly you've done both. And I mean, you previously shared that you, you give away um, about five to 10% of your philanthropy philanthropic dollars to patriotic philanthropy, which is, you, you know, you fixed the Washington Monument, the Smithsonian, the Library of Congress, and amongst many other things, you bought the only privately held uh, copy of the Magna Carta. Like, wh what is the ultimate objective uh, of patriotic philanthropy? And, and what have you found most surprising or memorable about the endeavor? Well, what's most surprising is that so many people are surprised that somebody would do it. I mean, I guess it's when the Washington Monument had its damage, um, I thought it would take Congress years to get it fixed and so forth. So I just offered to put up the money quickly. And I've been surprised at how many Americans think that many of these projects that I take on are ones that government should do. Even if the government isn't going to do them, they think it's the government's responsibility. I've been surprised at how many people, you know, think the government should do some things and the government doesn't really have the resource or inclination to do them. Secondly, what I'm trying to do is to remind people of the history and heritage of our country. Um, you can look at the Magna Carta on a, on a computer slide and know what's in the text of it, but it may just go in one ear and out the other. But if you actually go visit the Magna Carta, you're more likely to, to actually be impressed with what it represents and learn more about it. And my, my hope is by having historic buildings worthy of people visiting or of documents worthy of people seeing them, they will be 
more inclined to learn about the history and heritage of the country and therefore learn the mistakes we made in the past and learn about the good things we've done in the past and figure out how we can avoid the mistakes of the past in the future and build on the good things that were done in the past. So it's really an exercise to get people to learn more about our history and heritage on the theory that an informed citizenry will make a better democracy. Hmm. That's interesting. And so besides for uh, this incredible philanthropy that uh, you've engaged with, and uh, obviously the extraordinary success in private equity, you're also, we talked about you're writing books, you're in the interview business, you have your own Bloomberg channel, you uh, podcast. What motivates you to do all of these things? Well, I got very lucky in my life, uh, certainly toward the end of my life, um, where I got made more money than I thought I would ever make and, and um, had opportunities to do things that I didn't think I would do when I was much younger. So I'm really grateful to, uh, as an American to, for the country that made it possible for me to do this. You know, when my you know, ancestors came over here, they had no money at all. And now, you know, um, one of their descendants has been fortunate in the way his career worked out. And I just want to give back to the country. I'm not it's not clear to me if, if I'd lived in another country, I could have been able to do what I've done. So I'm grateful to the country and I just want to give back to it. And hopefully we'll inspire other people to do the same. Hmm. And so when you've kind of, uh, uh, you've embarked on this process some years ago, writing books, interviews, et cetera, uh, what have you learned through that process? And what has been some, as all the fascinating people that you've interviewed, I mean, these are global leaders. Um, what are some of the common strands or, or um, uh, common themes that, that keep recurring? Well, I stumbled into interviewing because I was elected the president of the Economic Club of Washington. I was supposed to get business people to come speak. I found out that they weren't such scintillating speakers. So I decided I would try to interview them and make it a little more entertaining. And it worked out. Then Bloomberg put it on television. And now I find that more people know me as an interviewer than anything else. Um, I, anywhere I go in the world, uh, I seem to, it seems that people come up to me and they say they like the interviews. They don't even know that I have a business career. Or I have a philanthropic career. They just see me as an interviewer. So it's kind of surprising. But I enjoy it because it gives me an opportunity to get to know other people. And everybody has a story. Everybody wants to talk about how they overcame difficulties and how they got where they got by hard work or whatever it is. So I think everybody has an interesting story. And I'm just trying to help people, you know, get their story out. And I enjoy doing it. I enjoy talking to people. You know, you're doing this interview. You wouldn't be doing this if you didn't enjoy talking to people. You have to actually reflect this in your interview. You have to enjoy talking to people, let them kind of express their views. And, and that's kind of what I do and why I do it. Um, it's a sideline. I don't play golf. So my substitute for playing golf is interviewing people. And other than, you know, this incredibly memorable conversation with Mo Litsky, which, um, which conversations over the years um, have proved to be most memorable and impactful to you? Well, the interviews I've done, I did one with Jeff Bezos in front of a large crowd. Whenever you do it in front of a large audience, you, the audience can, can make the interview more interesting because they can laugh and, and other things. But um, Jeff Bezos was a great interview. Um, I thought uh, George uh, W. Bush and Bill Clinton together were really good. Oprah Winfrey was really good. Um, you know, I don't think I've had any that I really didn't like. Uh, some people are, take a while for them to open up. Some people are more guarded. But almost everybody opens up after a while and tells you how they got lucky in life and how they overcame obstacles. And it's true of almost anybody. Hmm. And um, it, so it, I asked you earlier if there was any trouble getting any of the folks that you've gotten. Um, is, there, uh, is there anybody that still makes you nervous or anxious or fearful or, or even um, the process of, uh, of interviewing? Um, obviously, you're very well, natural. Um, 
I'm not nervous about interviewing anybody. Um, the only nervousness is when, you know, I go and I'm inter being interviewed by someone like Mo Litsky, then I get nervous because I know <laughs> that was, that's going to be difficult, but I'm not generally, not, I've gotten used to it. And if I, you know, I'm prepared as I, as I usually am, you know, I, I have enough self-confidence now in myself to be able to pull off the interview. Getting interviews is not always easy. As you know, uh, prominent people are busy. <laughs> not everybody wants to do an interview and sometimes they don't have the time to do it. And some people don't do interviews. The Pope doesn't do interviews. So, you know, I don't think he's going to give me an interview. Uh, I don't think David Rubenstein would be the first person he would give an interview to. I wouldn't give up on it. But yeah, no, I, I hear your point. Um, you, you've used before, and I, I, even in conversation we've had, you used the uh, phrase, you're sprinting to the finish line. Like, what right. does that mean to you? Like, uh, what I mean is this. I'm now 72 years old. Um, about 20% of the people born when I was born are now deceased. And every day, that percentage will go up. So um, when friends of mine at an earlier age died or friends at this current age die, you have to say to yourself, you better start getting things done now because you don't know if your time is going to be coming up soon. You know, a friend of mine uh, might come down with a, uh, with a terrible disease and he didn't have any or she didn't have any uh, warning of it. The same thing could happen to me. So I don't want to be all of a sudden affected by some my brain not working or my body not working and say, I should have done more. I wish I'd gotten this done. So by sprinting to the finish line, I'm saying I'm racing to get things done that I didn't get done earlier in my life. Now I want to get them done. I have the ability to get them done, but I want to get them done before the brain collapses or the body collapses. So, so, so what still sits on the bucket list? Like, what do you still hope to achieve? <clears throat> well, I'm still in the process of giving away money. So I want to find other good things and I'm, I'm working on that. Um, secondly, I want to make certain that my children are you know, in pretty good shape to be healthy, healthy and happy adults. Um, I also am interested in uh, doing more to kind of remind people of the importance of history and, and, and importance of giving back to the country. I'm also very interested in, in reminding people more and more about the importance of education, learning how to read well, speak well, things like that. But there are many different projects I have in mind. And, um, you know, Again, I, I, I sort of asked you this indirectly, but I just asked this a little more explicitly. Like, what was the, the best piece of advice or wisdom that anybody has imparted on you? And I guess a secondary question, just kind of a corollary, if there's only one thing that you can communicate to, you know, your great, great, great grandkids who you'll never know, what would it be? Well, um, I'll, I'll just give you one example. Uh, when I started practicing law, the head of the firm came in to the young associates and said, I'm only going to give you two words of it, two pieces of advice. One is return your phone calls every day. Now there's an equivalent of returning your emails every day, but what he was saying is be polite to other people, give them a courtesy, treat other people the way you want to be treated. Obviously a concept that has been around for a long time, but it's important, I think, to treat people properly and, and, and respectfully. And I think that's a good word piece of advice. The other thing he said was this, you know, the path of least resistance is easy to take, but if you cut corners, ethical corners, in five minutes, you can ruin your life. In five minutes, you can ruin your reputation. All you have with you that you carry around with you everywhere you go is your reputation. And don't ruin your reputation by doing some ethical thing, uh, unethical thing that in five minutes can ruin your life. So be very cautious about what you're doing. So those are two words of advice that have stuck with me. Jim Baker was in my firm for many years, a former secretary of state, and he used to say his father drilled into him the phrase, prior preparation prevents poor performance. 
prior preparation prevents poor performance. And uh, Jim Baker would add to that, prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. Uh, whatever he added to it, uh, it, it kind of instilled to me that if you're going to try to do something, really be prepared, as Jim Baker was. When Jim Baker was asked to do something, he was always prepared. And so when I do an interview or I make a speech, I do other things, I try to be prepared. Yeah. And and so, and what would you pass on to the great great grandkids? Any one of those or something else altogether? Well, I'd say to them uh, that, uh, you know, try to find something in life that interests you. Life is relatively short. You might be around for 80 or 90 years. Maybe you'll be extended 10 more years or so. But generally, life is relatively short and try to do something in on the, the time on the earth that is both interesting to you and enjoyable, but that gives back to society in some way so that you can feel you've made a difference uh, on your time on the planet. And, and as you think about that for yourself, um, in terms of enjoying as much of your time on the planet, how do, you, how do you maximize for your own happiness? How do you maximize for the fulfillment that you get from your own giving and some of your um, uh, other engagements? Well, I used to be maximized when my mother was alive. She actually take, took more pride in anything I was doing than anything I did because, you know, I was her only child. And so um, <laughs> she actually was pretty happy about it. Um, but now I guess I try to do things that my friends or my colleagues, my children and my two very young grandchildren would say, well, that's not a bad thing to do. And, you know, thanks for doing that. So try to give back to society in some way that other people think is a useful thing to do. Yeah. All right. No, it's, it's, uh I couldn't agree more. Um, David, I'm going to end with one question, which I uh, I probably misspoke before this interview. Uh, the last time uh, we chatted meaningfully like this, like you were, you came to Toronto, you flew up for a conference some six years ago. It was right before the Trump and Hillary election. And we were talking right before this. And uh, I said, oh, nobody will remember what you said. Don't worry about it. And I think at that point in time, you called the uh, presidential election. And uh, anyway, in the Q&A, somebody, of course, asked, oh, last time David came to Toronto, he spoke about it. He said, you know, Hillary would win. So curious question, maybe a, a redemptive question for 2024. Um, who do you see as a, the, the candidate or the prospect of a, of, of a Trump re-election? Uh, anything that you might have on um, the 2024 uh, presidential well. race? couple of things. One, if you try to predict who the next president's going to be about three years out, you'll be wrong every time. Um, <laughs> nobody would have predicted three years in advance, Jimmy Carter, uh, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and so forth. So uh, clearly it's impossible to do. Secondly, it's my belief based on information I've heard from people that have talked to them directly that Joe Biden absolutely intends to run for president again, even though he'll be 82, and that Donald Trump I think is leaning towards running and it might well run as well. So I, I just don't know what could happen. The world could change dramatically. Um, I, I, I just don't know what will happen. It's, it's impossible to predict, but I would say uh, it'll be interesting. We'll just see how the midterms go and then we'll go from there. But I, I wouldn't rule anything out. Yeah. David, for, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank for you very me. much. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope to do this in person again sometime in the future. Okay. Thank you for joining us today. We are grateful to each of you and to each of the generous sponsors that made today's program a reality. As a reminder, 100% of the proceeds from Lunches with Legends supports pediatric mental health, improving the lives of children and families in our communities. If you haven't already, please consider donating and supporting our efforts by visiting lunchswithlegends.com. Finally, 
To get exclusive access to our family office events and our annual conference, make sure to subscribe to our mailing list on the Prime Quadrant website, which you can access by visiting primequadrant.com.